come on a journey with a cinephile. I would like to welcome everybody to episode number 18 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide, David Garrett Jr., here recording in Columbus, Ohio. Figured I would actually throw that out there, as I know I did pretty early on, but kept forgetting to do it as of late. Now, for this episode, it's going to be a little bit shorter, I'm assuming, just from the amount of stuff that I have recorded already. But for this episode is Centennial Club Part 2. This is having featured reviews of this year's The Invisible Man, and I've coupled it with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1920. And the interesting thing here is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde also ends up becoming a universal horror film, but this isn't one of those, but I'll get into that later. I also only have three mini-reviews here. I have one for Jackals, a short film that I got to see called Mailer Damon as well as The Void, and I'll actually, in the mini-review section, go over kind of the reason why it's a little bit shorter this week, but that is what I have featured on this episode. What I'm going to do is get you over to a musical break really quick before I get into the first of my mini-reviews. Talk about it. 
Let's talk about it. Nah, let's talk about it before all these folks decide it's cool to give a fuck about it. Everyone's trying to make hits. I'm just trying to make music. You know the kind of makes you feel when you listen to it. I'm the youngest child, I don't need more attention You writing some bullshit, I write the lyrics meant for the captions I'm making songs that'll probably outlive us for generations Started off as the sailor, look at me, now I'm the captain I won't lie, this shit is fun Tell these Asian kids they could do what they want Might steal the mic at the Grammys just to say we won That everyone can make it, don't matter where you from Can't forget about the day that Sean called me talking about a vision called 88 That he's dreaming, man, I love him like a brother Every fall we gon' recover Just a man with a vision who mastered and causing trouble Man, I can't see the finish line Fall back, fall back I ain't fucking around this time The guy I know he created a legend in 99 Fuck pretending on the track, man, I mean every single line Touchdown, never holding back, shining like some buzz down, sailing around without a map. Been the underdog, now it's time to let me quarterback. Killing shit in uncharted territories, man, this shit get hella gory. Whole country of people proud, so I'll never worry. Glad you're sitting through the credits, man, this is my story. The type of shit that made me cry when I recorded. This is type of shit that still gon' make me proud, even when I'm 40. R.I.P. Nipsey. R.I.P. Matt, these inspirations always gon' motivate me to rap Let's celebrate their lives and the people that they impact The marathon continues, ain't no way we looking back Amazon Prime flow, you know I always deliver We crossed oceans for a chance just to feel something better Generations to sacrifice, I will always remember It's that circle of life shit, they hold me up like I'm Simba They told me I ain't welcome, I'm here to stay in my visa says so Just wait and see who songs they gon' blast up in their headphones Come back like every couple years to destroy like tornadoes Victorious tropical flow coming straight from Indo These plants only grow to just get cut and disposed They spotlight is dimming my future so bright that it glows You want the blueprint for one possible, I let it show Remember when Fox said the concrete grows a rose first mini review for this week is going to be jackals from 2017 this is directed by kevin grutart it is written by jared rivet and it stars deborah Kara unger ben sullivan and chelsea ricketts this is a horror thriller from the united states this is currently sitting on a 5.4 on imdb and a 2.4 on letterboxd with the synopsis being set in the mid-1980s, an estranged family hires a cult deprogrammer to take back their teenage son from a murderous cult, but find themselves under siege when the cultists surround their cabin, demanding the boy back. Now, this is a movie that I was turned on to a couple years ago when I was trying to do some more independent films for my year-end list, but it hadn't really gotten released yet, and I didn't want to pay the full amount that they had for the rental fees. I believe it was something like eight or nine dollars at the time and no offense to the movie but i just didn't know if i wanted to spend that much to watch it from my own home without you know kind of knowing a little bit more about it my sister i believe got the dvd for this one as it was poor part of the horror pack for one of the months so she let me borrow it as i knew it was a coming film on my list of ones that i wanted to check out 
and I knew this didn't have the biggest budget, but did hear some interesting things about it on podcasts. Just kind of fill in a little bit more of the background information. We have a Justin Powell, who is Ben Sullivan, and with him is another guy as their journey is derailed when they get a flat. They get out to check it out and realize the tire has actually been slashed on the side. And then a van pulls up, two men get out, and the other guy is knocked out while Justin is taken. Then we then shift to a cabin of people where we have Kathy, who is Unger, along with her son Campbell, who is Nick Rowe. And then there's a young woman, Samantha, who is Ricketts. They seem very anxious as they're waiting for someone, but their dynamic isn't explained until the van that we saw earlier arrives. One of the masked men is Andrew, who is Jonathan Scheich. And he is the ex-husband of Kathy and the father of Campbell. And the other man is Jimmy Levine, who is Stephen Dorff. Justin is also the brother of Campbell, so he's also the son of Kathy and Andrew, as well as the father of Samantha's baby. He disappeared after finding out that she was pregnant and ended up joining a cult. Jimmy is a former Marine that is there to deprogram him to get him back to, with his family. The problem is the cult that he was originally from is there outside of the cabin wanting him back now as i've kind of already alluded to i came into this pretty blind i didn't know what it was about aside from what i saw on the cover and i did know as i said that podcasts that i listened to gave a brief review of it not sure which one but they really didn't remember much about it and they said that they thought it was getting a bad rap and that it was pretty solid i actually have to agree that this movie does do some good things that i really enjoy the first thing would be that i'm a sucker for cult films if there's anything that I'm bummed about, it would be that I would want to know more about them, and we really don't get that. I won't hold it against the movie, though, as there's really no way that they can give us this information. Justin refuses to talk and just wants to be free, and the other cultists don't talk, so I don't think that would actually work in its favor to build, you know, more of the story as the fear kind of mounts that the less we know. And then, as I was going off of that, the more you know, the less scary things tend to be as well. Now, this movie, to me... I got vibes of the strangers mixed with a bit of assault on precinct 13. We have this group that are trying to make their stand to protect Justin and try to save him. So we have this group of cultists that surround them. To delve more into it though, his family is broken. It makes sense as to why Justin joined them as we learn his parents are divorced and then the reasons behind that. Justin lashed out by having a child with Samantha and I think he also used drugs. Cults tend to get members like him that are broken by things around them as they're more susceptible to manipulation, and I really think that works in its favor. Now, going along with The Strangers, I do have an issue with the opening that's based on true events, or how it is worded. I immediately roll my eyes on this. Since this takes place in the 80s, they're trying to play on the fact that this was the fear of cults in the 70s and into the next decade. I don't think that is needed here, though. I also didn't really get much of a vibe of the 80s, they try to show us with some of the vehicles and there's some televisions in the cabin that feel from the era. The movie feels timeless, so I think it actually works in its benefit for holding up, uh, you know, going forward. As for the pacing, I think it was really good. This movie has a runtime of about 85 minutes, and I think that's perfect. The cold open I do feel is out of place, though, as it really doesn't correlate back. Aside from the fact that it seems a member murdered his family... That doesn't fit with the rest of the movie, though, as it's not to say that this family is, you know, being attacked for this reason as well. It is more that Justin was taken is why they're selected. Once we get to the cabin and the family being trapped, I think it's good from there. Things happen at a good clip, and the ending works for me. There is a trope at the very end, but it did have my anxiety going with what the implications are. 
Then for the acting, I was really surprised by the cast, actually. We have a blend of people I haven't heard of with some solid actors. Unger is really good here. She does so well at playing this subdued character that is broken. She is divorced and she wants her son back. She has also turned to alcohol as a coping mechanism. Sullivan is interesting as well. He's entranced into this cult when we see him to the point where I question if he even know this, if these people or not. He doesn't really have much as he's been tied up pretty much the whole movie. It is just interesting that he's the crux of the events. Ricketts I thought was fine and adds an interesting dynamic with her being there with her baby. Roe is a jerk, but I feel that he feels slighted by all of this. Shike is solid as the father of this family. We like him at first, but there's just some information from the past that makes him flawed. And I like seeing Dwarf in this role. The rest of the cast rounded this out as well for with shoutouts to a Alyssa Jula Smith, who portrays somebody named Fox Girl as she is wearing a mask of that animal with what she's wearing as well and then the opposing size of jason scott jenkins who's the lead cultist now the effects in this movie are really good as well for the budget we don't get a lot of them if i'm honest but i don't think we need that the blood in this movie looks good and we get a scene where we see someone stabbed multiple times as well as a scene where someone is tortured with fire something i loved about this movie is the look of the cultist the use of the animal masks make it so creepy and it really made me feel uneasy for sure the cinematography I thought was well done for what was needed. Now, with that said, I thought that was a pretty solid effort, if I'm going to be honest. It does some things that I like with having this cult and this siege narrative. There are also some bad decisions made, but I think a lot of this is we have a normal family here that has money. So they've never really had to face decisions like the ones here. The acting is pretty solid across the board and the pacing is well done. If I have any gripes here, it would be that to correlate the cold open back to the rest of the movie somehow. The effects were good, as were the cinematography. And I thought the soundtrack fit for what was needed. Doesn't necessarily stand out, though. And I would rate this movie as above average for sure. Not a great movie, but definitely a solid effort. And I will give this a 7 out of 10. And for my next film is a short movie called Mailer Damon. This is from this year, 2020. It is written and directed by John Mudge. And it stars Joey Harmon, Rain Scott Katori, and David Tiefen. Now I was turned on to this when the writer-director reached out to me through my blog asking if I'd be willing to check out this short. As I've stated before, I'm always down to help independent artists, so I informed him that I would love to. And this is an interesting story when you have an email and then it bounces back from the mailer daemon. We're introduced to this company I believe called The Lighthouse through what looks to be like a 1980s VHS before it's taking us to meet Todd, who is Harmon. He's currently working as a mailer daemon with his boss Jeff, who is Teffen, breathing down his neck. Jeff is trying to get promoted, and the Mailer Daemons are really just workers with not a whole lot going on in life, as they're really just there to reply back to these emails. And Jeff is quite mean and threatens him with something called reprogramming. Todd's life changes, though, when he receives a letter from Kelly, who is Scott Katori. He sends a personal response that could alter his life if found out, as, as I said, they can get repurposed if they're no longer doing their job up to their capabilities. The first thing that struck me about this one is that as someone who works in an office, this is an interesting look at how monotonous it can be. Todd is literally just getting emails that are coming in written form and then replying back to those messages with an old typewriter that could not be delivered as it was sent. This is an interesting thing that I started to think about. What if there really was someone sending out these messages that I've gotten hundreds of times in my life when I've mistyped an email address? It is an interesting play on Daemon, as well by having Todd be a blue demon-like creature. If I have any gripes with this film, it would be that how it's played out. 
I personally would have liked to see it go a little bit darker than what we got. I'm not necessarily going to hold that against this, as that's this is really just more of a comedy. I found Harmon's performance interesting too. Since his whole life seems to be doing what he's doing right now, he needs Kelly to explain things to him that you know work out to be pretty funny as he is just asking such weird questions that we've grown up around this stuff so we don't really think about it but it's something that if you've never seen it you don't have any idea and i also would like to give credit here scott katori has a cute look about her and she brought not only attitude to this role but also quirkiness i had an interesting feeling while watching this where i've had my girlfriend or other women that I've dated tell me that they don't want, they just want me to listen and not to really fix their problems. Todd doesn't understand this, and that made me laugh for sure with an interaction between the two of them. I thought the rest of this cast rounded this out for what was needed as well, and I've also had bosses like Jeff, so I completely understand where they're coming from. They're not normally as vocal about it, but when you have a worker that has no other lot in life, I guess that's kind of what comes with the territory. Thought this was paced in a way that it was solid. I like how they established this mythology and the premise of it. We get introduced to the problem and how it plays out as well. I never found myself bored. As I've said before, I would have liked to see this play out just a little bit differently, but that's just for me. The effects also worked well. I was staring at the makeup for Todd, and I'm not going to lie, it amazed me. The color of his skin is unreal and done so well. I also like that this office he's working in fits much like a VHS quality as it feels like it's from the 80s. This is really just a fun short that I would definitely recommend giving it a viewing if you get the chance. This is really a comedy with some slight horror elements with it, both having a daemon and just, you know, working in an office in general. So my rating on this short is going to be a 7 out of 10 as well. Alright, and for the last film that I'm going to give a mini review here too will be The Void from 2016. This is written and directed by Jeremy Gillespie and Steven Kostansky. This stars Aaron Poole, Kenneth Welsh, and Daniel Fathers. This is a horror mystery sci-fi thriller from Canada. It is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, shortly after delivering a patient to an understaffed hospital, a police officer experiences strange and violent occurrences seemingly linked to a group of mysterious hooded figures. Now this is one of the first films that I watched when I got into podcasts and you know started to check out some of the ones they were recommending. I didn't know a lot about it before coming in but just enough that it sounded interesting. I ended up realizing that after this I needed to keep checking out some of these newer horror films and I know this was technically one of the first year-end lists that I ever made and I know from my experience talking about it a lot of people like this but not everyone seems to. And to kind of just give a little bit more background information, we have that it starts inside of a farmhouse. We have James, who is played by Evan Stern as he's fleeing from it. He goes out into the night where we hear a woman screaming and then odd noises. She comes out and is shot in the back by somebody credited as the father, who is Daniel Fathers. And then his son is Mick Biofsky. Now, the woman is shot in the back and then set on fire. And then we also get an image of a person in a white hood and robe with a black triangle where the face should be. And then we end up meeting Daniel Carter, who is a deputy, and he's portrayed by Poole. He is sleeping out on a dark road, and his shift is almost over for the night when James comes out of the woods and Daniel goes to check on him, taking him to a hospital that recently burned down and kind of just has a skeleton crew until they can move everything over. And it is there where the nightmare kind of takes place as they get trapped in this hospital along with Allison Frazier, who is Kathleen Monroe, Beverly, who is Stephanie Belding, 
We also have Dr. Richard Powell, who is Kenneth Welsh. And then it ends up becoming more people who are in this cult with the hooded outfits with the black triangles keep them inside and they end up encountering things that are very monstrous like and their things don't always as they seem and there is a nightmare that plays out around them. Like I said earlier, I'm quite glad that I heard about this movie and checked it out. I recently got the DVD and showed it to my girlfriend as it seemed like something she might be more interested in as it's a little bit more faster paced than some of the ones we've been watching recently. Now I will have to say, this is a very surreal film. I came in knowing very minimal as I said, and I think that really helped me to enjoy it. And it is very heavily influenced by HP Lovecraft as well. Some of the creatures definitely have that look about them, especially that of kind of like a Cthulhu. There are also references to gods that are older than, you know, the Christian or other major religion type god. And then, I mean, the name in itself of this movie, The Void, references the Abyss. What I also like about this film is that you never get everything fully explained, so you can kind of piece things together yourself. The setting is great, as they're in this building that has a skeleton crew doing, due to the fire. They're trapped by the cult members who are outside. They don't advance, but they're just kind of keeping them inside, so it gets claustrophobic. There are multiple entrances, so you never feel safe. And the cult just kind of stands outside of there, making it even scarier, as they never really speak. And I liked that the ending as well, and thought it was fitting for what we got, you know, leading up to it thought the acting was pretty solid as well. Poole is our main character, and I like that this film doesn't have, you know, to blow you away. Everything going on around him and the setting are enough. And what he did was great, though, and a believable performance, and just seeing him kind of sink down into despair with as things play out as well. Welsh was solid as the Doctor, and I love his character arc as well. I didn't see it coming, and it fit for me. Fathers was solid in his role, as was Monroe. Wong and the rest of the cast. I also have to give a shout out to Biofsky, who had a tough role to play in this and that his throat was damaged so he can't speak. I'm not sure if this is something he really can't do or just something the film decided, but I like the idea there. And I also wanted to give a shout out to Hindle. He was in The Brood as the hero in that film and that is Art Hindle, who portrays Mitchell in this who's a state trooper who shows up to kind of help try to take command of things but doesn't really necessarily succeed. I have to commend this film for their use in practical effects. The things that we get to see I thought look pretty real and that makes it much scarier for me. Now this does pay pretty heavy homage to the thing with some of how the monsters looked and moved. Most of the effects were done practical because of the budget and most of this was actually done through crowdfunding which I thought was impressive. Now the only CGI that I know of is some of the cult members. That worked really well and I had no issues there and I thought the cinematography was pretty solid. The end of the film was very well done. I like how they splice in scenes of other things at times to build the story and it all makes sense in the end and it makes things feel creepier. And I also feel this movie really needs to have multiple viewings as with my second one that I just did here, I know how things tied in so it helped me to piece things together even more. And I also like when people think a room is one thing, but then we see what the truth of the matter actually is. So I would definitely recommend this film. If you're into surreal horror films that bend reality, I think you will enjoy this. It has cults, monsters, and things to this effect. It does well in making it feel real. And the nods to Lovecraft and his cosmic horror, the acting I thought was good enough for what is happening around them is really the star though. 
the effects in the movie are great. I think there is a really good movie, and I wouldn't say that this is going to be for everyone. If the above things are what you're into, I would say give this a viewing to see if you do enjoy this. And I'll admit, my rating has come up after the second viewing, so I'm now going to be an 8.5 out of 10 here. And I do apologize, this week is a little bit lighter, as I did go to see three movies in the theater, and I can't really do full reviews on any of them here, as they weren't really horror, but I did see a Blood on Her Name was one of the films. This is really kind of a crime thriller type movie, where a mother is trying to protect her son as well as her business, and we just kind of see she keeps making the wrong choices and falling into despair. Thought it was a good movie. I gave that one an 8 out of 10. I also saw Disappearance at Clifton Hill, kind of almost in the same vibe where a boy disappeared many years ago, and the young girl who saw him the day he disappeared ends up looking into all of that, and she's got her own baggage she has to deal with. Another one I thought was pretty solid that I gave an 8 out of 10. And then I also got to see Guns Akimbo, which is the new Daniel Radcliffe film, as well as Samara Weaving, where they're playing this live-action, almost video game, called Schism. And he gets sucked into it when he tries to troll some of the people on the message board and gets guns that are nailed to his hands. Really fun movie. Didn't go dark enough for me to really consider it to be... It is still a genre film, but not really into the horror. I would recommend giving that one a viewing, which I also gave that an 8 out of 10. And then I also, for Duncan's movie club that he does over on the podcast Under the Stairs, I did watch To the Devil a Daughter. And that one, if you want to hear that, will be one of the reviews that will be featured on that one. And I'll do the written review at some point as well once it's been posted. But, you know, keep following that podcast over there for when that gets released. So what I'm going to go ahead and do now is send you over to the trailer for my first featured review. As the attorney representing Adrian's trust, I'm required to read a prepared statement. Cecilia, although our relationship was far from perfect, I thought that you would talk to me rather than run away. Are you okay? What happened to him? He cut his wrists per his final wishes. You're getting $5 million. Contingent, of course, on the fine print. It can't be ruled to be mentally incompetent. It just doesn't make any sense. What? Adrian wouldn't kill himself. Listen, you're getting your freedom back, okay? Don't let him haunt you. Hello? He was a sociopath, completely in control of everything. He said that wherever I went, he would find me, walk right up to me, and I wouldn't be able to see him. Are you okay? Someone sitting in that chair. I found something that can prove what I'm experiencing. You need help. Adrian is dead. I went to his house today. He's not dead. I have a pile of ashes in a box that would disagree with you. He has figured out a way to be invisible. Only thing more brilliant than inventing something that makes you invisible is coming up with the perfect way to torture you, even in death. 
Adrian's true genius was how he got in people's heads. Don't come any closer. Hey! I'm not crazy. Please listen to me. You're saying the person trying to kill you is in the room right now. But we can't see him? He's listening. Where are you? Where are you? Show yourself! Come on! Do it! There you are. Okay, and for my first feature review of this episode is going to be The Invisible Man. This is written and directed by Lee Winnell, and it's from a story by him as well, and as well as being based off of the novel by H.G. Wells. This stars Elizabeth Moss, Oliver Jackson Cohen, and Harriet Dyer. This is a horror mystery sci-fi thriller from Australia, the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom. This is currently sitting on a 7.7 on IMDb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being when Cecilia, who is Moss, her abusive ex takes his own life and leaves her his fortune, she suspects his death was a hoax. After a series of coincidences that turn lethal, Cecilia works to prove that she is being hunted by somebody nobody can see. Now this was a movie that when I first heard about it, I was intrigued with what they were going to do. I know that there has been some attempts to remake some of the Universal Classics, and possibly try to do a universe like we've seen in Marvel or DC. But it is also interesting that the original movies had a bunch of sequels, and The Invisible Man is one of my favorite from those original, you know, run for Universal. And I was also curious what they could do with, you know, the updated technology here as well. Now, we start with Cecilia waking up in the middle of the night. She's being extra careful as she's in bed with her boyfriend, who is Adrian Griffin, and he's portrayed by Jackson Cohen. We do see that she's drugged him, but she still doesn't want to alert him as she collects her things. She flees into the night and accidentally sets off a car alarm, which we then see a light turn on in his bedroom. She makes it to the road where she waits for her sister. The tension builds until Emily Cass, who is dire, appears, and Adrian breaks the window of the car as they speed off. Now she stays with a friend, who is James Lanier, who is Aldous Hodge, along with his daughter Sydney, who is Storm Reed. This has been done in secret. Cecilia has not left the house since arriving, which has been two weeks. She gets upset when her sister shows up, though. As she is scolding her, stating that Adrian will use her to find Cecilia, Emily reveals that Adrian killed himself. Even more of a shock when a letter arrives for her at James's place, when no one really knows that she's staying there. It is from Tom Griffin, who is Michael Dorman. He's a lawyer and the brother of Adrian. He's tasked with managing the estate. He reveals that Adrian left her $5 million to be paid out monthly for the next four years or so. Cecilia decides to do nice things for her hosts, including helping Sydney go to college. Problem is that weird things start to happen around her. She thinks someone is watching her. There's a moment where blankets seem to be moving and things happen during a job interview that she cannot explain. She suspects that since Adrian was one of the foremost in optics in the world, that he's faked his death and has found a way to be invisible. He's now messing with her as she descends into madness when no one believes her. And it becomes the question, though, is he really doing this or is it just her being so messed up by the trauma that he put her through that she is imagining these things? Now, since I laid out my thoughts here on what I really liked about the original, I thought that writer-director Lee Winnell has some good things to play with here. What makes this scary is that the power to become invisible is something that can really corrupt. Heck, I'll be honest, I don't know if I trust myself if I had that ability to become invisible that I wouldn't do some pretty horrible things myself. 
it's one of those things where just like that type of power can corrupt now this is legitimately terrifying as well now i'm clearly a male so i've never had been in a relationship like cecilia i've taken to talking to my girlfriend jamie about her thoughts on this and she really liked the movie i've also seen a horror writer online that i respect and how she said this movie brought up memories of being in a relationship similar to this I personally found that to be the most terrifying part of the movie. I'm not saying this to spoil anything, but I think that this is the scariest thing is that no one believes her. This takes it to the extreme with things that happen in the movie, but it is really horrible that in society, we don't believe when women in a relationship are either not believed or taking a blind eye to what is happening to them. Seeing the fear on Cecilia was painful for me to watch and I felt real to me. I have to commend of how strong of an actress she is I hope it's not the case, but I believe she's probably drawing for at least some kind of real experience that she is bringing to this role. I also, to an extent, cannot blame those for not believing her in the case of this movie. How can you in a rational world? I think this adds to the fear as well. It is really genius how this plays out. During the execution of the will, Tom tells Cecilia that she cannot be convicted of a crime or that contract will become void. What better way to control someone than to drive them insane to control them and then frame them so she has to decide, do you want the money or do you want your freedom? I think in the case with Cecilia and most, it would be you no know, peace of mind over the financial part. This movie does play with that more though, with the amount of money that she has is life altering. Is it enough though for you to possibly, you know, have what is being done to her? It really makes you question your own morals and what you're willing to deal with. Dynamics around her are interesting. Emily is someone who is a strong woman which I think Dyer does a great job at portraying, something happens that upsets her towards Emily and it creates a divide between the two. It isn't done in truth, and I really like how strong Cecilia and Emily both are. As a male, I don't feel I have a fragile ego. I wanna see more of what we got here in my movies until it just becomes a normal thing where I, we don't have to point it out. Some might feel that this is me pandering, which if, that, if you do, that's fine. Regardless, that is how I feel about this situation, though. We also get an interesting character in James and his daughter, Sydney. Something happens where they need space, and I can't fault him as it is his job, first and foremost, is to protect his daughter over Cecilia. I think Hodge and Reed portray these characters very well, also. Now, there are two more characters I want to talk about, but I won't for one until a brief spoiler section at the end. But I do want to talk about Tom here. There's an interesting reveal with him during a scene with Cecilia when she's locked up. I love that he reveals he feels similar to her in that Adrian was controlling over him and that he's glad that his brother is gone as well. The reason I like this is that it's going back to where people know bad relationships are happening and are just complacent and not doing anything. It is heartbreaking, but it's also being that Tom is his brother, I don't necessarily know what he can do either especially when they kind of seem to work together in a professional manner. I will say this is paced in a way where I never got bored. I saw that at a runtime of over 120 minutes, so I was curious as to how things would play. The only time that I have some issues would be with the final sequence, which I'll delve into in my spoiler section. It really isn't how it plays out, but just how a character is played that just didn't fit for me. Now, Jamie disagreed, but I'll get into that, and I think it is effective in how this movie overall builds the story. Things get progressively worse until a satisfying conclusion, and I will say I did like the ending overall as well. That'll take me to the effects, which I was curious. I knew in this day and age we would have to go CGI. Surprisingly, I thought they were well done. There's a scene in the rain 
that I was really worried about, and I thought it was handled very well. The things that were done were good. There are just some very minor complaints during the climax. Not enough to ruin anything, and just something that I just noticed overall. The cinematography I thought was very well done, as well as strategic in my opinion. The last thing to cover would be the soundtrack, which I thought fit for what was needed. It really does have more of a classic score that helps to build tension with things that we're seeing on the screen. It never took me out of anything, but it also just necessarily like one that I would revisit unless I'm watching the movie. Now, I'm not going to take any points off for that, though. Now, with that said, I really like this movie. It is really a sad tale that is based in reality, but seeing it taken to the extreme. I thought the performances were really well done into building the realism, especially from Moss. The concept is really good as well. Despite its longer running time, I think it works and it never got boring. And aside from the final scene, it ends in a way that I liked. The CGI had some minor issues, nothing to ruin anything, and I thought the soundtrack fit for what was needed. This is a really good movie, borderline on great, and it will definitely be a contender for me at the year end, if I'm going to be honest. Now, personally, I have a new rule for this year. For movies that are the highest that I can rate them is a 9 after the first viewing, but I do plan on rewatching this before the year ends to see how it holds up and how I feel, you know, knowing how things play out. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is give this a 9 out of 10, and I'm going to start that spoiler section here. As always, I'll have it time-coded so you can skip ahead to anything after this point, but the spoilers are going to start now. So it turns out that Adrian is in fact not dead. I don't think this is a surprise with revealing this with what, you know, the name of the movie is and the things that we're seeing. I think that if it was actually just in her head, I would have probably hated this movie. So I do like that they're playing with if she's crazy or not, though, still. Also having those around her, not believing in her, really does help with the realism. This really does correlate with how many women really do feel, as I've said. Plus, in a normal world, we can't believe that there's an invisible man. What I really wanted to delve into here is, at the reveal, Tom is found inside of the suit that Adrian is and then Adrian is found tied up in his basement. Cecilia doesn't believe even though that the evidence around her is pointed to that. My issue here is that Adrian doesn't seem to be the mastermind that she believes. She is wearing a wire with James listening outside. Now Jamie thought this was done in a way as Adrian being the mastermind that he is knows that somebody's probably listening and that he's portraying the story that he's spinning. Now this does work against him with what Cecilia does as I love the chess game that is being played at this final dinner and the peace of mind that she gains as well. I just don't get the vibe, and it might be just the actor of Jackson Cohen that doesn't just feel the things that we see throughout the movie that he's actually doing. I know Jamie didn't buy the strength, and my argument is that madness can sometimes enhance that, even though scientifically this is proven to be untrue. What I do know is that we have things in our brain that where we prevent ourselves from going too far, and when we're not using our conscience, like someone who's crazy, that's in part how they can kill people as well. And I'll kind of delve into a little bit of some of the things I didn't like. There's a moment in the, the mental hospital when Cecilia's trying to like get out that we literally have security guards seeing that there's somebody who keeps appearing and disappearing. And instead of doing something to you know stop this person, they're yelling at Cecilia to get down. And it just doesn't make sense to me. Like you could literally see this person here Yet they continue on as they're yelling. So that was one of the things that I really kind of had issues with there. I mean, I do have some minor quibbles like how long has the Invisible Man been sitting there doing some things? Like what happens if he eats? Just things of this nature. But I do like the idea that there's a suit that can make this person become invisible so they can, you know, 
take it off whenever they need to to reappear because i know that was kind of an issue that was delved into in the original movie all right now that's all i really wanted to delve into here especially with how new this movie is but what i'm gonna go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my next featured review And for my second featured review of this episode, the second entry into the Centennial Club would be Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1920. This is directed by John S. Robertson. It was from a scenario written by Clara Barringer and written by Robert Louis Stevenson, who did the novel. This stars John Barrymore and Martha Mansfield, as well as Brandon Hurst. This is a drama horror sci-fi film from the United States. This is currently sitting on a 7.0 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being Dr. Henry Jekyll, who is Barrymore, experiments with scientific means of revealing the hidden dark side of man and releases a murderer from within himself. Now, I remember I first watched this movie when I was fresh out of college. It was around the time that I was starting to seek out more of the classic horror films that I had never saw previously. I wasn't the biggest fan of this as I still hadn't really gotten around to appreciating silent films like I do now. Now this is my second viewing of this and I've seen a handful of adaptations of the Stevenson story which is The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Now we start this version out learning that there are two sides within man. There's the good side as well as a dark side. It is then introduced to us that Dr. Henry Jekyll, by all means he's a great man. He runs a clinic that helps the poor, he's a man of science, he's engaged to marry Millicent Carwey, who is Mansfield, and Dr. Jekyll works alongside a Dr. Lanyon, who is Charles Lane, who questions some of his work and the things that he's trying to do. Things then take a turn, though, when he shows up late for a dinner at Sir George Carway, who is Hearst. He mocks Dr. Jekyll for his reluctance to experience life. This is quite odd, as he's the father of Jekyll's soon-to-be bride. I almost get the vibe that this is taking place in the Victorian era, 
where men were allowed to kind of indulge more in their desires while their wives were keeping, you know, things at home. Dr. Jekyll decides to do just that with what Serge George claims that he should do. But he turns to science before he does that. He creates an elixir and it brings out the dark side of him that is buried deep. He names his version of himself Edward Hyde, who Barrymore also portrays. He quite enjoys this and continues to give in to this nature. The problem becomes that he starts to regret the actions of Mr. Hyde and it might be too late for him to stop that side of himself from coming out. And the fear is also that Mr. Hyde will eventually just take over completely. Now, much like many of these early movies, there's not necessarily a lot to the story, but I do think this one conveys quite a bit still. I do find it interesting that this is looking at the duality of man. I've said that this in other versions for that, and it really is the nature of the story that is being adapted. This also has a different film version as well as some of the things, how they play it out. What I do like here is that they're establishing that Dr. Jekyll is really a goody two-shoes. He doesn't really seem to do anything wrong. He's running a charity clinic. He only has eyes for his fiance and really doesn't have any vices that is established in this film. It isn't until Sir Carraway and his friends get into his ear and take him to a music hall that he's tempted in the form of a dancer named Miss Gina, who is portrayed by Nita Naldi. I can't say that the events that happen aren't Dr. Jekyll's fault because it's not the case, but these men do need to shoulder some of the blame for tempting him like they do. And I also like the science they have in this movie. They really don't delve too much into it, which I do appreciate. It would be hard to do this early in cinema with some of the things that you don't have the technology to do. And being that it's silent, you have to convey so many things with title cards, so it could be hard to do there. We do get some interesting shots that are under a microscope while Dr. Jekyll is doing some early experiment. The interesting thing though here is the removal of free will. If Mr. Hyde could come out with a serum, there conversely could be another one that would remove this evil side as well. Normally the good is considered to be less powerful as once corrupted it is hard to go back. This is just a concept I thought of while I was writing up my original review before you know recording this audio. And it almost kind of could be circled back to something like a Clockwork Orange where they are conditioning out the ability to do bad things and the negative effects that it kind of portrays, where free will really makes humans what we are because we you know, choose to do the right thing, whether it's your religious beliefs or you just decide to do the right thing because, you know, laws or just personal nature. So I do find it kind of intriguing that this kind of delves into that, you know, all the way back in 1920. As for the pacing of this, I thought it was fine. We're getting an 82 minute runtime. It establishes our characters and then we get to see the corruption of, you know, Dr. Jekyll pretty early on. There's an internal debate of what to do. And when we see Mr. Hyde and some of the things that he, you know, does, and it's pretty much whatever he wants and really starts to ruin Dr. Jekyll's reputation. This is kind of intriguing here in that the Victorian era is really about your persona. And being that Dr. Jekyll associates with Mr. Hyde, this actually makes Sir George question if Dr. Jekyll could marry his daughter, even though it's really kind of guilty by association because of the company that he keeps. The movie does do some darker things than what I remembered, and I appreciated that. The ending is also bleak, and I can get behind that for sure. Two of the acting, I guess I should lead off here if you were curious. Yes, the Barrymore that stars in this one, I believe is Drew Barrymore's grandfather. I think he does a really good job in this movie. We get that baseline of seeing him, you know, good, clean cut, and all that. Then I like the transformation that we get into Mr. Hyde. He looks pretty creepy in his makeup, and I love how different the two performances are. He really helps carry this, and Hearst is interesting as this is the corrupting force along with Lane, who isn't that supportive. Mansfield I thought was fine as the love interest. 
They really don't do a whole lot with establishing her, to be honest. I think it's a lot of it is, you know, just kind of built-in misogyny for the time when it came to film. And on top of that, they're not really too much concerned with her, except that that's kind of the link between Sir George and Dr. Jekyll. But I mean, they really don't establish much as her character. There is some interesting scenes, though, where another man is interested in her hand. And I think this is just kind of brought up that Sir George has a reason to cut off the engagement with Dr. Jekyll. The rest of the cast, though, I thought rounded this out for what was needed. Something I was really excited about were the effects. They're pretty limited in how the movie is shot. But being this is early cinema, I can't really hold that against it. We get a couple of transformation scenes that I thought looked fine. It's very basic as they're really just showing somebody and then you stop rolling the film. Then you have the person put on a little bit of the makeup, have it on there, and then you, you know, go a few more frames and you keep doing this until, you know, the makeup is fully on there. And I'll say it's an easy technique, but I will take it over CGI pretty much every day if I'm going to be honest. I thought the look of Hyde was good. He looks just enough to be like Dr. Jekyll if you really look, but he also has a creepy enough look to see somebody who is, you know, this darker side. And there's also something really creepy that happens when Dr. Jekyll wakes up in the middle of the night and sees his dark side coming over him. And it's taken the form of a creature that's spider-like and it's see-through. So I know they're doing kind of a ghosting technique, but it was really creepy regardless. If I do have a gripe with the version of the film that I watched, the soundtrack on my DVD, I don't like the score that they have with it. I don't know if this is the one that was originally, you know, coupled with it and if it was intended or not. My problem though is the music just seems to start and then allowed to play all the way through until the song ended. There were just times that I didn't think it fit and it took me out of what they were trying to do. It's hard to hold that against the movie as I'm not sure if that, you know, was the original music that was selected. I just had to point it out here as some personal gripe that I had. Now, with that said, this is a solid effort to the story in the early history of cinema. I thought that this explores some interesting concepts from the story and bringing that to the screen. The acting from Barrymore really helps to carry this. I thought the rest of the cast rounded out for what was needed. The effects and makeup are pretty solid overall. There were no issues with the pacing for me, and really the only issue I had would be the soundtrack that was on the DVD. I do want to seek out see if there is a different one to see if that might alter my thoughts and kind of bring my rating up. I would say this is an above average effort though. I will warn you if you didn't know and couldn't tell from the things I said, this is black and white and silent from the 1920s. If there's a problem, I would definitely avoid that. But if you want to see more of the history of this story in film or just the horror genre in general, I would give this a viewing. And then before I ended this, I just wanted to drop some trivia that I found. It looks like John Barrymore hauled many of his prized potted plants from his apartment to the set to appear as scenery in the movie. Contrary to popular belief, this film was not shot at the Astoria Studios in Long Island. It looks like the principal photography took place in the Amsterdam Opera House in Manhattan in order for Barrymore to make his regularly scheduled Broadway appearances between February 1920 and September 1920. As one of the things I've noticed is that you get a lot of these actors back then almost pretending like they're on stage. And I think that makes a lot of sense that they were probably pulling a lot from plays. So that would, you know, jive there. And there's a short Renaissance flashback in this movie where Hyde is explaining to Gina about the poisonous mystery of his secret ring. And the set pieces and the costume were brought from the jest. That was a hit play in which John Barrymore had starred with his brother Lionel Barrymore on Broadway in 1919 before shooting this picture. 
Tulua Bankhead was originally offered the role of Millicent, which eventually went to Martha Mansfield. Many of these early adaptations of this were actually taken from stage plays, which also kind of makes sense with the actors as well. Uh, there's actually an interesting line in the movie that the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it, as is in the movie it's attributed to Robert Louis Stevenson, but it's actually Oscar Wilde that said that. And that's all the really trivia that I wanted to include here, but my rating then would be a 7.5 out of 10. And what I'm going to go ahead and do is send you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. There's just so much goddamn weight on my shoulders. All I'm trying to do is live my motherfucking life. Supposed to be happy, but I'm only getting colder. Wear a smile on my face, but there's a demon inside. There's just so much goddamn weight on my shoulders. All I'm trying to do is live my motherfucking life. Supposed to be happy, but I'm only getting colder. Wear a smile on my face, but there's a demon inside.
Okay, I want to thank you again for listening to Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. Now in closing here for episode 18, if you would like to get in touch with me, you can email me at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com, reviews of the dead, where you can read any of my written reviews for anything on this show or any of my other reviews that I have done, and that is at horrorreview.webnode.com. Facebook, you can find me at David Mishkin Garrett Jr. You can go ahead and send me a friend request, and I will accept that on there. Twitter, you can follow me at Buckeye from Mish, Letterboxd. You can follow me at David OSU on Instagram, David OSU87. And there's also the Flick Chat app, which once again has gone a little bit quiet over there. If you do want to join that and get in on that app, it'll be Journey with a Cinephile. And all of these will have links and information in these show notes, as well as all of the time codes. Now, for next week's episode, I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to do as of yet. I am going to see a new horror movie this week at some point. I believe it's called The Dark Red. It does look quite intriguing, and preliminarily, that's going to be one of the featured reviews here. And I'm also not sure what I'm going to do as... If I'm going to do my St. Paddy's Day episode for this week here, or if I'm going to do it for next week since... It kind of awkwardly falls in the middle of the week. But either way, I will either make this another... Episode 19 will be another Centennial Club episode, or I will have kind of a little bit of a St. Paddy's Day special. One of the two will be happening, and whichever one isn't on 19, that'll end up being on 20. So I want to thank you, though, for listening and coming on this journey with me. This is David Garrett Jr. signing off.